I'm standing in the middle of the Rio Grande. Perplexed, somewhat stupefied by the image uh, in front of me. You're hearing Arlise Hernandez, who covers border immigration for The Post. And she's physically standing right between the U.S. and Mexico. Hundreds, if not thousands of people are moving in front of me, sort of trudging through a swift but low current, carrying things on their head like boxes of food or, in some cases, mattresses. Today, we're going to take you to the southwestern border, where thousands of mostly Haitian migrants have crossed the Rio Grande into Texas. They've made camp under an international bridge, even as the U.S. tries to deport them by the plane load. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Emma Talkoff. It's Wednesday, September 22nd. In Del Rio, Texas, on the U.S. border, thousands of people have crossed over from Mexico. After surrendering themselves to Border Patrol, they're just waiting while their papers are being processed. But it's an amazing image of just, you know, thousands of people in these makeshift shelters underneath the bridge, surrounded by federal and state law enforcement. That encampment is already shrinking. Immigration officials are starting to clear the area, and state and federal officials are trying to keep people out. We uh, put uh, hundreds of Texas Department of Public Safety cars and created a steel wall. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has ordered miles of cars to try to physically block people from entering the country. A steel wall of DPS vehicles that prevented anybody from crossing that uh, dam that we've seen people walk across walking into the state of Texas. There have been some surreal photos circulating. Images of Border Patrol agents on horseback reaching out to grab migrants, slapping them with reins, driving them back into the river. The Biden administration has been airlifting plane loads of people back to their countries of origin, mostly Haiti and places in South America. That number is expected to double today. Now, there had been three or four flights that were going out each day. Now we're up to seven flights a day full of people, hundreds of people on these airplanes to a country that really is in no position to be able to assist and receive these people after a series of crises had walloped the island nation in recent months. This was pretty unprecedented. The context is that camps like this exist in Mexico right now with thousands of people. There's one in Tijuana, there's one in Reynosa, and there was one until February in Matamoros, Mexico. These are all cities that are on the other side of U.S. cities. And this is just the first time that we've seen this number, this magnitude of people on the U.S. side. But this has been happening in Mexico for a long time. You know, because of the various policies that the United States has employed under Trump, under Biden, it's created sort of these, like, corking the bottle, if you will. And how many migrants are we talking about, you know, waiting there, especially, I guess, a few days ago when it was at the peak? At its peak, I heard numbers as high as 18,000. It's probably somewhere between 14,000 and 18,000 with more on the way, that little asterisk, because there, again, there had been dozens of reports from, from Mexico that more buses were on their way. Right now, it seems to have been reduced to under 10,000. And like, where are all these folks coming from? Why are they leaving? Why are they making this journey? 
Well, they're coming from a variety of places, but primarily, at least, you know, my experience in talking to migrants, many of them are coming from South America. These are folks who had migrated years ago after the 2010 earthquake in Haiti that devastated the island nation. They sought other opportunities in South America and countries like Chile and Brazil were at first receiving these migrants and giving them, you know, identification papers. They were able to work in some cases. But the pandemic and the devastation it has wreaked on some of those economies certainly pushed down pressure on these immigrants who, you know, are at the bottom rung of society in these places. And it was enough, the racism, the discrimination, uh, the joblessness, to push these folks to continue northward to the United States where they have family. Can you describe a little more what the scene is like on the ground there right at the border? I have not put eyes on the camp itself, but what I can tell you and what you can see from various vantage points is just this, it's this huge patch of dirt. You know, this is this is brush country. This is the middle of the Chihuahuan Desert. I mean, the river runs through it, but this is, uh, you know, high desert country, essentially. And so it's a patch of dirt where folks are using Carrizo cane, which is a, like, like a bamboo, like it's actually invasive plant, but it's pretty tall. And what they're doing is taking those the, the cane, stripping off like the leaves and making almost like teepee structures with them to to create shelters or to create huts. I understand from several migrants that like the children are suffering the most. There just isn't much space there. It's dirty. It's dusty. Earlier in the week when I was in the Rio Grande, you know, folks were using the river as a place to clean themselves. People were actually bathing uh, in the river with soap they had bought from Mexico because this place was just so dirty hygiene is is not great. You know, the government has brought in portable toilets, but, you know, one of the migrants told me, I mean, it's just foul. I imagine thousands of people using maybe, you know, a dozen to two dozen portable toilets. I'm sure there's more than that. But, you know, it's just not not a great place to have thousands of people. And yet this was the choice that they were making. They'd rather be, you know, in the United States trying to go through this process. So who have you been talking to? What what kind of stories have you heard? I heard from several folks. The first was a guy named Wendy Guillametre. And Wendy had traveled from from Chile. He's 31. He's a father of a of a young daughter, three-year-old. And I encountered him on the spillway in Ciudad Acuña in Mexico. He had been in the camp. His wife and child were still in the camp. But he was there because he needed a second to just collect himself and to cry, and he didn't want to cry in front of his daughter and wife. But, you know, it was sort of a moment of release for him because he had made this incredible journey from Chile where he had tried to make it work for him and his family. He's uh, an information systems, like, computer engineer and had been studying law in, in Haiti before they were forced to leave as a family. And he was just telling, you know, if, if the United States just, just gave us a chance, right, I would pay taxes. You know, I would be buying goods and services in the United States. You know, our presence would be a boon. I mean, he's literally going through all of this in his head trying to, you know, figure out what the best argument that can be made in order to stay and be allowed to stay in the United States. Arlise, I want to ask you, we've all been seeing some really startling images in the last few days of not just 
migrants and the conditions that they're dealing with, but also Border Patrol agents. Can you just describe how these migrants are being treated by federal agents and, you know, kind of what's going on there? Well, the image that is now all over the Internet is of a Border Patrol agent mounted on a horse. This is, you know, one of the many forms of of transportation that Border Patrol use reaching out, grabbing, and in some cases it looks like, you know, using the reins of the horse to to hit or to strike a migrant who has a look on his face of, you know, of fear and what looks like anger on the agent's face. And it's sort of this evocative image of a white law enforcement official on a a horse, you know, grabbing aggressively a black man. But what I can explain in context is that in in the last several days, Border Patrol and Texas State Troopers have tried to tamp down and control river access, egress and ingress into the the camp itself to try and limit some of that back and forth that has been happening pretty regularly earlier this week. It appears that this mounted Border Patrol agent tried to stop some of that movement. It appears that things got a little out of hand. The de- you know Department of Homeland Security's Office of the Inspector General is now investigating that incident. And it's sparked quite a bit of outrage. And the image itself is just it's startling in the sense that it evokes, you know, some historical pain around the treatment of of black people in the United States by government, by law enforcement. And while, you know, I can't say definitively what happened there. I mean, Border Patrol does use horses regularly in that really tough terrain, but they use it also for, you know, for crowd control to try and, you know, push people in one direction to keep them from going to other ways. But, you know, those are those are really painful images to, to look at. Why were they permitted to operate in this way? And is this some sort of standard procedure to corral people using horseback maneuvers that really look like you're herding cattle? Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas was asked to explain what was going on in those images on Tuesday on MSNBC. Joy, thank you very much for having me on the show. Uh, The matter is under investigation, as I mentioned to the vice president today when we spoke earlier. Uh, Let me uh, be very, very clear. I, too, was horrified by the images uh, captured by photographers with respect to the uh, activities of Border Patrol agents on horseback. We do not condone, we do not tolerate any mistreatment of any migrant. After the break, what happens to migrants after they're released from custody? And the policy that makes it possible for the U.S. government to send people away. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
after spending a significant amount of time at the river and and talking to people who are back and forth, I decided I wanted to, you know, check out what was happening sort of on the other side of this, which is the releases of families. Del Rio is a city of about 40,000, 35 to 40,000 people. They don't have an actual bus station. The bus station is a gas station. So I went over to the gas station to, you know, to talk to migrants who had been recently released from custody and were, you know, about to board buses to head out to, to San Antonio or other destinations. And that's where I came across Gerlin. My name is Gerlin Joseph. I am the co-founder and executive director of the Haitian Wood Alliance. And we work at the U.S.-Mexico border from Tapachula all the way to Tijuana. Right now, we are at a gas station and we came here to see how we can help some of the migrants who will be spending the night out here um, without a shelter. Why are they here, though? Uh, from what I understand, they are here because they have nowhere else to go. There isn't, a, uh, there isn't an overnight shelter in the Rio. And if people do not have the means to get a bus to um, to San Antonio or a bus to the nearest bigger city, they end up stranded here at the gas station. I want to take a step back and just ask, why are so many Haitians and other migrants in Del Rio in the first place? Can you just give me the context there? Del Rio has been a popular crossing point for migrants for many, many months, for nine months, certainly since January and prior to that. Part of the reason is that it's relatively shallow, the water. But what's probably more of a factor is that the Mexican side of this particular crossing point is relatively or comparatively safer and not as much cartel or criminal organizations uh, involvement mm-hmm. as they are in other crossing points where, you know, people have been kidnapped, people have been beaten for for not paying to get across. This is a relatively safe crossing point for them. And, you know, when one group of migrants makes it through, they communicate to their relatives, to their friends, to to other people who inquire via, you know, social networks or, or word of mouth, hey, go to Del Rio, go to Acuna, mm. that's where you need to come through. So Venezuelans in particular and, and Cubans, these are migrants who generally can pay a little bit more than some of the Central American migrants will pay to be smuggled or will fly into Mexico City and take buses to Acuna uh, for that reason. And what is the Biden administration doing about the people at the border? So right now they've increased the number of personnel that they have down there working with the migrants. Um, I mean, if you if you just look past the the border fence, it's just a parking lot of all kinds of ABC agencies that are that are wow. working mm-hmm. um, with these folks. They have uh, negotiated deportation flights back to to Haiti, which is interesting because, you know, Haiti is in quite a bit of turmoil right now. They are working with Mexico and it seems like they're putting pressure on Mexico to step up their enforcement on their side at their southern border to keep these folks from making the journey all the way through. And in some cases, just doing what they can to, to speed up this entire process. They brought in lots of buses to, to move people. But in terms of sort of a complete or coherent strategy, 
Um, that that's something that we we you know a lot of people in this community have been asking for and and wanting to see mm. and and not clear that 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 has come together yet. Yeah, because I'm assuming people are there to seek like their legal right to come to the U.S. and seek asylum. But that's not what's happening. No, because uh, the Biden administration has kept in place this Title 42, which is this public health order that basically gives them the power to summarily expel people without screening them for something like, you know, credible fear, which is the standard for asylum. You know, one of the ways to request asylum in the United States is that you have to be on U.S. soil and request it. So, you know, Mm -hmm. what these folks are doing and crossing and then, you know, asking for asylum is completely legal in in some senses. There, you know, it, it's kind of a, a weird area of law where it's like, you know, you don't want to cross the river illegally, but the port of entries are not available to you. There aren't any other options to do this. And so, you know, I'm going to cross the river and request asylum on U.S. soil. I think the courts actually ruled and told the Biden administration that they need to lift this order this is expulsion order, but they are appealing it Mm. and they are working in the courts to to keep it in place, which is something they've been, you know, heavily criticized for by by immigrant advocates, uh, pro-immigration outfits and and people who just watch the the legal back and forth of this. Yeah, because I think, you know, Title 42 is something that was started under the Trump administration and it sort of seemed like maybe it would go away. I'm wondering, have you talked to migrants who are surprised that the Biden administration seems to be following right in the footsteps of the Trump administration when it comes to this policy. Like, did they come partially because they were expecting things to be different? Yes and no. Um, That's like a a, that's a complicated question. I think, you know, migrants are aware, certainly, of the political situations into the communities they're coming from. But it's not like, you know, they're reading The Washington Post and The New York Times and, and keeping tabs of every little, you know, change in policy or court case that happens. What they're doing is talking to each other and letting them know. So while the first waves of migrants, you might have been like, okay, new administration, this seems like an opportunity for us. You know, is it specific to Biden? It might be, but it also just might be the change of administration. I was talking to a former Border Patrol agent yesterday and he was telling me, you know, every time there's a change in the presidency, you know, this it looks like a window of opportunity for migrants. And there's always a little bit of an upsurge in, in people coming across, only it usually dissipates by the summer. In this case, it just hasn't. So I think, you know, migrants and what they've told me are aware that, you know, this is a president who has said that he would be more welcoming to to immigrants, that they know for a fact that other people have made it through. And so they were looking for their shot as well. Arlise Hernandez covers border immigration for The Post. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Lena Mohammed and Alexis Diao with production help from Jordan Marie Smith. The episode was mixed by Renny Stranovsky. If you're interested in a deeper look at Title 42, the Remain in Mexico policy, Arlise reported a two-part audio documentary about it earlier this year. She worked with Post Reports editor Ted Muldoon to tell the story of a woman named Nancy, who was kept in a migrant camp at Mexico's border after fleeing violence in El Salvador. The series is called Marooned and Matamoros, and we'll put a link to it in our show notes. I'm Emma Talkoff. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 